Welcome to the Academy of Esports podcast. I'm your host, James O'Hagan. This is a great episode today. I've been trying to get this man on for two years, and we're buddies. We're friends. We, we, we we've talked. We, we talk. We talk. What about about once a week, probably? For sure, on average. At least. Yeah. This is my friend Ken Shelton. Ken, thank you so much for being on the Academy of Esports podcast. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. I, I'll say we've talked about it for two years, but I have not turned you down for two years. No, you have not. It's always just been a matter of making <laughs> our schedules work, sorting things out. But Ken, I want to give some people an opportunity for people to, to kind of get to know you a little better. There may be some educators who don't know who you are. There may be some people who are wondering, Ken's not an esports person. Why are you having him on the podcast? Right. My uh, introduction to Ken uh, was probably, oh gosh, I don't know how many years ago it was, but Ken speaks on an international level on topics specifically on education, but I think is most eloquent when he is talking about and presenting topics on equity and equality, the differences there are, and why it is so important for in education. And in the last week, we talked to Erin Ashley Andrews, and, and she, um, the NCA made some changes, and she spoke very uh, deeply about inclusion issues, especially at historically black colleges and universities when it comes to the NCAA and, and where esports kind of fits into all that. But Ken, what is a little bit, just as much as we can, because I know you love to talk, <laughs> can you... <laughs> Can you give us just how did you end up from teaching in the classroom in Los Angeles to being an internationally recognized speaker? Uh, You just uh, launched some uh, new material on your on your website. How did you get here? So basically, my short version of my story uh, is um, I really didn't have any desires to work in education early in my adulthood. Um, I do come from a family of educators. My father uh, was, uh, by the time he reached the latter portions of his career, he was an assistant superintendent and the chief business officer for uh, three different county offices of education here in California. And, uh, you know, and so ultimately when my early attempts at trying to play professional football didn't pan out, then a, I would say a, 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 a few peaks and a lot of valleys as far as acting goes. Um, you know, and I, I did, I would say I did have reasonable to high degrees of success doing modeling work and print work. When that was not consistent, my, my dad basically said, you need to look at increasing the options. I'm not telling you not to pursue things, but you should need to increase the options. So ultimately, the short version is I started substitute teaching and mm-hmm. I realized that I had always had or envisioned myself at some point, especially after my freshman year um, of playing football at UCLA, I had, I had envisioned that I would uh, go back and teach in high school and be a high school football coach. So, mm-hmm. um, so I started, you know, substitute teaching and kind of got into that and got into it more and more and more. And it still gave, gave me the flexibility to do uh, print work. And I was also in a theater group for several years. So. Ultimately, I went all in with that, got my credential, got a second credential, then ended up getting a third certification, uh, which is why I'm such a staunch advocate for the CTE world as well, which mm-hmm. my third so uh, my third certification is um, is in career and technical education. And then I ended up getting uh, pursuing a master's degree. Um, I'm still on the cusp of pursuing a doctorate at this moment. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, by doing that, you know, for me, it was, 
a byproduct of, I would argue, why I was successful in sports is I never accepted the status quo. I never, never uh, embodied a mindset of complacency. And, you know, so it just, I would say the big push was my dad back in 2007 I uh, went to a big meeting at the Googleplex in Mountain View and then mm -hmm. called me afterwards and said, I just went to the Google offices for something that they're going to be doing for education. You need to have this on your radar because I know you're into technology and I know you do all the tech stuff. You need to have this on your radar because they're going to launch a program that I think you should pursue. And that ended up being the Google Teacher Academy. So, mm -hmm. you know, my dad's advice was on point then. Uh, then go to uh, a couple of years later, I was fortunate enough to become an Apple Distinguished Educator. Um, but, but the reason why I mentioned those is because ultimately I recognize that one of the values or one of the things I really like about education in general is uh, our default willingness to share. Mm -hmm. And in, in both of those areas, and then in general, I noticed a, a what I would say a collegial camaraderie that that I, I needed more of. And then I realized very quickly after getting my first speaking opportunity in front of probably about 50 people for a workshop is I can combine my passion in education, my desires to be on stage, which is like I said, I was in a theater group hmm. and the, um, I would say the adrenaline or rush that I get being in front of a big crowd, which I got from football. So you combine all of those, and this is where I was like, okay, then if I'm going to do it, I'm going all in. And my whole thing has always been, if you're going to be a bear, you might as well be a grizzly, so or a Bruin. Uh, no. So <laughs> anything so, but a Trojan. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> but but at any rate, so then I just I really really started um, doing. I accelerated my reading. Mm -hmm. I started doing more uh, studying of practice in regards to public speaking. Uh, like I said, my theater background helped a whole lot as far as being able to uh, be projective with your voice, being able to use, uh, you know, things like stage real estate, being able to weave in, uh, you know, what I would say key points among narratives. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you combine that with the design aspect that was part of my master's degree as well as my understanding of design. And then I also taught it. It just accelerated where I've been fortunate enough to get a lot of stages. I still want more stages, but I will say in the last probably three to four years, my narratives have shifted because early on it was around why you should have technology, why we should use technology. When I want to say, actually, it's not even four years ago. It's probably closer to about, honestly, probably six years ago, mm. conversation with a former student of mine where I realized that that technology is great and we do need it. But one, not everyone has it. Two, not everyone even has access in the first place. And three, it's not the panacea. Mm -hmm. So it is a required, it should be uh, a, a, a definitive and required component to any child's educational experience, K through 12, and really even higher ed. But I just say K through 12 because, you know, ultimately you, you mentioned equity. You know, some children are not going to go to college and they shouldn't be forced to, nor should they have to. By the time they turn 18, you should have options. And so, you know, so for me, it, it just, my whole narratives have shifted to more along the lines of, you know, equity and inclusion, diversity, which I know we'll talk about a little bit, mm -hmm. uh, and then adding layers of anti-bias and anti-racist uh, training support, ongoing learning, 
and um, and analyses of the curriculum that we teach, because there's a lot of that that is embedded in the curriculum that I think perpetuates some of the inequities that exist and some of the false narratives that educators tend to gravitate towards, because those false narratives essentially um, are a way of abdicating to their complacency and comfort rather than pushing their thinking so that they can do better. So, and and I think what we are seeing right now, and again, we'll talk, I want to touch on the differences between equity and equality, because I think that those are two terms that, that get misused and some people think they're interchangeable. But what I feel that, and you, you can probably speak to this, is, you know, we go to a lot of conferences, technology conferences, and we see tools presented by people who have never stepped foot in a classroom, who have no background, no education, who fill a room. We can't figure out why. But what we're seeing right now is that the, all that stuff, all that time people spent in a room learning about Google Apps for Education or Adobe or God knows whatever tool it is, the warts have been laid bare in our country as to just how important equity of access, or I guess we'll talk about equity or equality, but access in our country, the inequities of access in our country are wearing ugly heads. It doesn't matter how many tools you have. It doesn't matter what that knowledge was. You missed out on these opportunities to really begin to get down and understand just how important just a simple issue of access is now a social justice issue because we have kids who don't have internet access at home. We have kids who maybe are only sharing one computer and there's three or four kids in the house. And now they're being asked to do their school learning without any supports from teachers or from their, their school district. Uh, families are, are having to purchase internet access or they have in, in, inadequate access. And here's the other thing I'm starting to figure out too. There are some teachers who don't even have some of these tools in their homes. They can't afford internet access. And yet we're asking teachers now, though it's not in a contract, though it's not explicitly ever said, hey, you have to teach online. Some of these teachers never signed up for this. So, you know, so you, you just brought up several things. One, um, and, and I did a blog posting on it, mm -hmm. uh, is that no matter how you package it, e-learning, remote learning, distance learning, it's not working. And it never had a chance in the first place. So uh, let me let me paint a picture for you and for your listeners on this. So my master's degree is in uh, it's the the official title is New Media Design and Production, and so it's essentially design and instructional technology or educational technology. So I did had courses on like computer-based instruction, uh, design for synchronous and asynchronous instruction, uh, design for inclusivity. Um, you know, looking at um, incorporating a variety of methodologies within the context of designing for whether it's designing for learning, designing for specific outcomes, designing for, for ongoing training, I mean, all of those things. I had to take classes on distance learning, e-learning, mm -hmm. and remote learning. They're not all the same. No. Uh, so, for example, e-learning requires technology. Distance and remote learning do not require technology. I know I'm noticing that some teachers are having trouble being able to discern what exactly synchronous and asynchronous mean. And it's of no fault of their own, but the reason why I'm saying that is I had to take a full year of classes on those topics in my master's program. Mm -hmm. So to expect teachers, schools, school leaders, and school districts to automatically say, Okay, we're shutting down school, so we're just going to do remote or distance learning. Mm -hmm. It's it's it was like I said, it was never going to be successful right from the start. 
And, 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 and I don't want any of your listeners to take this as an indictment on teachers or school leaders because ultimately, I don't. I, I, I think there is degrees of culpability, but it was never going to work because here's the thing, and you just pointed to it. There is a, the, the, the US DOE released a report, uh, I wanna say last year or the year before, one in five children don't have internet access in the home. Mm -hmm. And so- Well, I, I don't wanna I I pause on that for a second because you're talking about 20% of your kids. In a class of 20 children, you're talking about four who don't have access at home. And I can tell you too, from my personal experience and to bring this around to esports, because in my community of Racine, Wisconsin, where we have a high poverty rate, where issues of access abound, uh, where we suspect actually 30% in our community don't have access to the internet. I know how important esports is. I know how important play is. The connections that these kids have made with adults, the connections that they've made with each other through play, through esports, competitive gaming. And what I've seen is I've seen an entire team, one high school team, because, because yeah. of demographics or whatever, has disappeared. It's like, yeah. and, and, and here's what, what troubles me about that is, again, and this goes to the bigger topic as well. Imagine if you, somebody said to me, well, baseball's not going on and football may not go on in the fall. I said, yeah, but imagine this. What if three quarters of your baseball team is still playing baseball, but the other 25% can't? Right. For whatever reason, you would never let that happen. You would no. never let that happen ever. No. no. And, you know, and it, it look, it's it's why I keep pushing educators now. And again, I actually had a link. I have a link in my blog posting uh, encouraging educators to sign a petition. The fact that the Internet isn't a utility is is absurd. Absolutely. You can't tell me now. Now people are seeing that, like, yeah, it's just as important as the lights, the gas, the electricity, I mean, you know, whatever it is that are, are required for you to live your daily life, the internet is part of that. Mm -hmm. Whether it's running a business from home, connecting to a school, connecting to information, banking. I mean, I think about how many things uh, people are doing now that if they don't have internet access, they can't do it, period. And so then now you're adding the layer of that to schools and to kids. And to your point, yeah, what if, I mean, look, again, I think that a lot of school leaders have done a good job of managing what I would call the, our current pandemic uh, and time frame as educational triage because they're doing the best they can under the circumstances. Mm -hmm. But my whole thing is also, okay, so you did this now, great. What's going to happen in the fall, and what are we going to look at a year from now? So, for example, in the school districts where they handed out hot spots to all the kids, in the fall, when school resumes, uh, which it will not be the same, and I hope it isn't the same as what it was, mm -hmm. um, and we can touch on that a little bit, are you going to take the hot spots back, or are you going to make sure that the kids have them? And even with the hot spots, it's just, it's literally a Band-Aid on the symptom of the disease, and that, and, and, and it's, you know, it, the hot spots have bandwidth limitations they may have data limitations mm -hmm. uh what happens in a, just to your point what happens if you're in a household let's say you're in a household where you have you know more than one child and they all do have a device are they using one hotspot can it handle those connections you know i, I saw grossly irresponsible posts by um one of the uh, the the big tech companies where they you know they had these rules for online meetings and the first rule was you know go to a quiet place in the house <laughs> like, 
dude, that's so classist, man. It's just like, you, it really? So I, I, I responded on Twitter and I'm like, you know, this is, this is not only tone deaf, this is classism at its best. 70 to 75% of my former students, there's no quiet place to go in the house, Right. period. And, and, and even adding to that, which I alluded to this in my blog posting, how many kids are working to support their families and their household, and, and they're working now because they're in an, quote-unquote, essential job. You and, know, and it's Ken, just, it's, it's ridiculous. And Ken, it, it goes even deeper because, you know, again, as you're talking about, I, I'm thinking about families of, of mine who live in motels, hotels, who, you know, again, everybody's in the same room. But let's think about this situation, too. You, you, t- you touched on students who are working to help support families. Here is my concern, and this is where I feel that the early opening of states is completely irresponsible is because because you have you have issues where parents will now have to in some cases choose going to work but daycares are closed and schools are closed so who does that leave taking care of the kids well it could be family or it's going to most likely be siblings and now are we going to have situations where we're talking some depression era type stuff where Teenage kids are not able to, even though there's compulsory education laws, cannot attend school because they are taking care of families. Here's the other thing we're going to have, and this is what I'm I'm preparing my school district for. I oversee our digital virtual learning program. I said, I'm going to need expanded resources because I can guarantee you, even if we come up with the best reentry plan that makes everybody feel safe, I'm not going to say safe, but makes them feel safe, I am still, I guarantee you, have families who are going to say, that's great. I don't want it. I want full-time virtual for my students the entire year. That's exactly. it. End of story. Well, do you, here's the thing. Do you blame them? No. I mean, they have access to health care. You already brought up one other thing. I, I'm going to add another layer to this because I, I think this needs to be inserted, and I'm purposeful in inserting it into our narratives. What about our rural school districts? What about the rural students? They don't even have access. Like mm-hmm. you, I mean, think about it. There are some areas that that I've I either have friends that work in or friends that live in, or that I've had the opportunity to go to where even my cell phone the connection is minimal at best. So that hotspot not even going to work. Or so, or or worse. How about this? Let's add an. an I'll go on, I'll go another layer on top of your layer. In those rural communities, because I lived in a rural community where I lived out on on an unincorporated area, right? Yeah. First of all, getting internet access was was hysterically funny because it was a, literally a guy standing on my roof pointing a satellite dish, you know, in a direction. But the second thing I found out very quickly is is people said, "Well, just go to your library. Couldn't you just go to your library? Library is only open three days a week, and because I was in an unincorporated area, I could not be a member of that library, even though I had no other services." Wow. See, and that, that that's just a cop out. Just go to your library. Just go. I remember early on uh, in my last at my last school uh, with a lot of the kids that didn't have internet access at home. One of the teachers uh, took the time or, or, or let me let me directly quote what she said. I took some of my valuable time to put together a document that has a list of all the places near the school where you have free Internet access. And it was a library, which I'm, I'm a staunch advocate for public libraries anyway, but the library was on there, but you had Starbucks, you had McDonald's, you had all those others. And I, I just, I couldn't sit still and I couldn't sit in that faculty meeting and accept that. And of course I raised my hand, which let's just say every time I raised my hand in a faculty meeting, the eyes would roll and everything else because, you know, here it is, Ken going to say something. Um, and I think 
And honestly, I think those reactions were most so because of who the messenger was, not what my message was, um, mm -hmm. which goes back to my mention about anti-bias and anti-racist professional learning support. Now, with that being said, I just said, okay, so basically what you're saying is for some of our students, because the school is a top one school, but you in one classroom, you could have one student where the household income of their family is over a million dollars sitting next to a student where it's only 30,000. Mm -hmm. um, it was very, very much a significant uh, delta of household income at that school. But I said, okay, so let me get this straight. Some of our students can go to the comforts of their own home, kick their feet up, connect to their uh, work online or do whatever they're gonna do on their computer that their parents bought them because we're not supplying them with this stuff, mm -hmm. uh, the equipment. Uh, and uh, and maybe if they're if they're really fortunate, which some of them are, they'll go home. Actually, they'll leave school. They'll do their extracurricular activity, whether it's dance or a sport or something along those lines. Then they'll go home. They'll go on their computer. They'll do a little bit of work. The food is already prepared for them. And then a tutor will come over and help them from let's say 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. or maybe 8 p.m. to 9 p.m. Mm -hmm. So you have that one. But then you're saying that you want other students who might have to take care of a younger sibling, might have to do something that is required of them in the house. But you're, what you're saying is, if you have a device, you can't go home. You have to go to any one of those places to do the same work that one of your classmates is able to do in comfort of their own home. And I said, that's unacceptable to me, and I will not do that. And that goes into a whole other thing I'll be writing on uh, probably be between now and the end of this month is uh, the whole idea around homework. Because if people think that what we're currently looking at is inequitable, guess what? Homework has been that way even all the way back to when I was in school and you were in school. Oh, my God. It's we were so exact same thing. We were so quick when we did our shutdown. Guess what? There were a lot of school districts who said we're going to use this as enrichment time. OK, so let me get this straight. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> OK, you 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 you're you. you, you every day send home kids with expectations to complete homework. Yet right. when we have a shutdown and they can't be in the school, you're going to make that and you're going to make all that stuff that they do now at home enrichment. So I'm confused as to what then the value or the equity of, of homework is in and of itself. And uh, who's the gentleman who, who writes quite a bit about the fallacy of the importance of homework? Um, Alfie Cohn, thank you. Yes, Alfie does some amazing work on on that subject. Yeah, but but yeah. Ken, we we've spent a lot of time. We we've pointed out. I think we, between the two of us, I think we've we've hit on the large, uh, I guess, problems of inequity. But let's 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 pause for a second again, because there may be some people who are just inundated with a lot of things. Let's get let's let's put it take it back one little bit. Equity, equality. What's the difference? Okay, so equality is everyone gets the same thing. Okay. Which I say that that can also that can be just as problematic. Treating everyone the same can be just as bad as treating treating everyone differently. So equality, everything, everyone is the same. Equity is assessing where resources need to be allocated and then doing a distribution so that every student in this case has access and opportunity. So that's how I define equity, access and opportunity. So you do not treat everyone the same, you treat everyone differently, but that those differences are based on 
pragmatic information that you've been able to obtain, as well as an assessment of what those individualized needs are, and then the distribution and allocation of resources are appropriate based on the needs of the student so that they have access and opportunity. You cannot have an equitable classroom, school, organization, or anything if, you de if your default is, we'll just give everyone the same. So going back to our example, just give everyone a Chromebook. That's mm -hmm. equality. Equity is, okay, if we're going to give everyone a Chromebook, we need to assess which students have access, which students don't. Now that we need to guarantee they have access. Now we need to assess what kind of access do they have. Now we need to uh, uh, assess when they do have access with their device and their hotspot, if you will, in the home, do they have a space that allows them access and opportunity to complete any of the work that might be assigned online? You see, it's it's just it's the the two are not only the not only are they not even close to being the same. It is really important to be able to discern the difference and understand the difference between the two, so that when the decisions are made, whether it's in the classroom, in a school, a school district, or anything like that, is that it is you are ensuring access and opportunity for all students. And and I'll even add that, you know, and I do want to touch on the esports uh, we'll get story that you we'll told. Good, because because ultimately, here's the thing. What we're currently dealing with right now is, and, and I know there's a list of words, there's social distancing, there's unprecedented, there's unexpected, there's all these things. Look, the bottom line is this. A lot of the things that we're dealing with now, they've always been there. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and I'm not the only voice that talks about these things, and I haven't been the only voice, I won't be the only voice, and I shouldn't be the only voice. You and I have actually talked about this quite a bit. Mm -hmm. What's going on right now has just peeled back the veil of the inequities that have existed on a systemic level. Yes. And yes. so for me, it's it's when we resume, what's going to be different, and more specifically, how courageous are educators across the entire educational spectrum, from superintendents all the way across the spectrum to classroom teaching assistants, which, by the way, they're just as important. Um, and in fact, here's one. I always wonder, the more disconnected you are from students, the more influence you have on what happens to students. See that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, but well, I will say well, this. I will. Right. I have to add this. I'm friends with a lot of superintendents who they, they, they are the example of what I call exemplary leadership because they make it a point. In fact, several of them, and, and I tease them about it because I'll text them you know, periodically, and I'm like, so how many classrooms do you get to this week? Because they make it a point to go to the schools that, uh, that are in their districts and go into the classroom. And they're not going to classroom to, you know, assess whether the teacher is doing well or not. They're just like, it helps keep me grounded on some of the decisions I make if I know exactly what's going on. I, I can't so, agree with, I can't agree more with that, Ken. And in, in, in my role as the director of digital virtual learning, the biggest impact on me on a daily basis is the phone calls and Google meets I do with students. And sometimes yeah. their their parents, I and it's not it, it it is to check in. It is to say like, hey, here's where you're at in your courses. I, I serve as the mentor, yeah. but what I also find out for them, for example, I had a wonderful conversation with a young lady yesterday, um, and I noticed that she wasn't working on one of her courses. Uh, we talked a little bit about it, but then we got into well, what are how, you know, especially in this time right now where those interpersonal connections are so important. Having conversations with that student to find out what she does in her spare time. You know, oh, she she's really into acrylics, like painting. 
I said, nice. oh, I said, is there any, are you, do you have enough supplies? She goes, well, I really wish I could get into like uh, uh, watercolors, but you can't buy any right now. They're everywhere is sold out. Finding out things like that informs me as far as my virtual program that my mission is to make virtual personal. How do I make a personal, a very impersonal thing like virtual learning a personal thing? And it starts with those conversations, those phone calls with everything else other than the curriculum. Correct. Correct. And so, you know, I mean, again, going forward, which I will write about this, you know, it's uh, and we're going to link to all, all of Ken's. I'm going to link to all your stuff. So we got to make sure I, you I appreciate that. it. I, yeah. I mean, I'm having a I'm having a new website built literally as we speak mm -hmm. um, because I just I want to change to a, a more responsive platform. Uh, but what I published last week uh, is part of what I'm going to call an ongoing series called Real Talk About Education, which you and I have had lots of conversations that I would identify as quote-unquote real talk, mm -hmm. uh, because it's going to go into a lot of what we're talking about here and now and going forward, you know, as far as what is school, what's, what is school going to look like, what should it look like, uh, who's being asked. You know, I'm looking at some of the things posted now where people are going to billionaires and asking them, how can we reimagine education? Like, no, <laughs> that's just a replication of the reason why we're in this situation now is you're asking the wrong people. Mm -hmm. Ask the practitioners. You know, you don't, look, I'll put it to you this way. You don't go to an executive chef and say, how can we make nursing better? You just don't. It's 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 ridiculous. But but this is but but again, this is one where as educators, we have to amplify our collective voices and push back on that garbage and say, look, you know what? Just because someone went to school doesn't mean they know how to do school. Well, well, Ken, I, I also have to tell you this. This is the one that always gets me. Uh, it, it is because a lot of of families have this, and I know you and I both do as well too, because you led with this story. Well, I have my, my mother was a teacher or my father was a teacher and I really respect teachers. Great. Wonderful. Why are you talking policy to me? What? What? It's like my father worked on the Apollo space program. My father's worked in the airline industry for a number of years. I have a great working relationship with my father. Don't come to me without how to run an airline. Don't right. you know, I could, if I said, oh, I'm going to start my own airline today. I am the worst person to have running an airline. Right, right, right. No, it's a, it's going to have to change, and you even touched on it earlier. As far as which will be another writing I will do, is I hope you're writing all this down. I hope you have this all noted out too. Like, no, I have, top. Trust me, I have a list. I have yeah. a list. You know, um, and I remember seeing a quote that kind of prompted me with this: "Is if it doesn't challenge you, it won't change you." Mm -hmm. And you know, and my whole thing is for educators. You know, once you once we once we have some distance between what we're navigating right now. And what you're doing later, mm -hmm. I'm going to ask questions like all of those PDs that were uh, mandated by the school district, all of those conferences of which you got to choose the sessions you went to, all of those mechanisms that you could be the agency of your own learning. How well did they serve you right now? And more specifically, the question you should be asking yourself is when I go to this session and learn about blank, how is it going to make me a better educator? And more specifically, how is it going to ensure access and opportunity for my students? A tool-based session is highly unlikely to do that unless you have assessed what areas of need your students have that are not being filled, and maybe that session on that tool can help you do that. 
But it does require a degree of introspective thought, reflection, assessment, and then, of course, me uh, identifying the needs of students and then being responsive to those needs. But just simply going to 100 apps in 60 minutes is not going to cut it. In fact, not only is or, or, or 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 hey, stop for a second. You and I were at a conference March, early March, uh, before all this broke. People were standing in line next to your session. Yes. Yeah. Why were they standing in line? Did they even know what they were standing in line for? No, I remember that. It was a session on Google Classroom. But but yeah. the people but the people didn't say it was Google Classroom. They just said this is this is the Google session. Do you know what it's about? Right. No. I mean, it, it's statements like that that just make me like cringe. Like, well, then why? Same, same here. Look, it's not it's not so much a knock on Google. I, no. I, I will say that I'm a big fan of Google Apps for Education. Look at what it's, it has done uh, for, uh, you know, for students in schools that have Google Apps for Ed. But, but to your point, yes, I had, so it was... Um, and my, I didn't mean to do that to put you on the spot, by the way. I, and no, again, it's okay. It's okay. Yeah, it's, it's not a slam it, on no, Google. No, because here's the thing. The bottom line is we have to talk about this stuff. Because if you don't bring it up, you don't talk about it, then it's going to continue to persist and endure. Mm -hmm. And and so the thing is, is it's not so much a knock on all of the folks that were in line for that session, because I did only talk to a few, a small handful. I'd say probably 10. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I was in a ballroom that I was doing my session titled Designing a Culturally Relevant and Culturally Responsive Pedagogy. Um, I would say there were probably about 200 people in my room, and the room could probably seat about, honestly, probably about four to 500. Mm -hmm. There were at least 400 people in line for that session. And yes, I asked the question, because I was like, wow, you know, there's a long line for this session too. And I literally said, hey, what's the session? They're like, well, it's some Google thing. And I'm like, what Google thing? Well, Google Classroom, I'm like, okay, what are you gonna learn about who's a presenter? Who cares, it's Google. Yeah, that, that's that, it. that right there is like, it was, I couldn't, I didn't have enough time to engage in a conversation, constructive conversation with those folks because I would have said, okay, so have you assessed that Google Classroom is going to transform the opportunity and access that your students have and that's why you're choosing that session? Or is it because it's safe and comfortable and you don't wanna push your thinking and more specifically, you have not, you're not cognizant of the fact that every time you choose a session for learning that doesn't make you better, the collateral damage are all the students that don't have access and opportunity. And to bring this around to esports, because again, there has been a tremendous, ter tremendous rush to implementation. There have been some of the best meaning people who have made grand overtures, lots of followers. Uh, you know, the Twitterverse is is full of of what some of us refer to as charlatans in a lot of way, educational charlatans, some good people, but there are some who are just, they just speak because they have a, a, a pulpit. Right. But what I find is that um, this rushed implementation is people who see the surface and they don't think beyond the games. They don't think beyond the computers. They just think, Oh, I'm just going to have my, my esports team. Well, there's a lot more to an esports team again than computers and, and and PCs and games because if you stop there, you're missing out on the much bigger opportunity that you have to really connect with kids, right. to bring in this entire ecosystem that's beautiful. But what's now going to be even more, I think, as people start to unpack esports in the age of COVID, um, these issues that we've already touched on access, 
the kids who need this the most. And you said, as I think you said it uh, just a little bit ago about how if it doesn't if it doesn't change you or challenge you, it doesn't change you, right? Some of the biggest conversations, those of us who are involved with esports right now are gonna have to have, are gonna have to have with finance departments, with other educational leaders. When we say, you know, that Chromebook's really nice for my esports team, I want a full on PC and I want something that's probably triple or, or quadruple the price. But because I know that this is something that for kids when they engage in it is meaningful, it's a pathway to college for some of them, for some of them it's the only exactly. way that they do engage. As you said, equity. We have to think in an equitable way. The Chromebook, I, I'm a fan of Chromebooks. I like them, but they Same serve they, they serve they serve one dirty task and it's all gotta be. That's right. A it, purpose. That's the key. A purpose, not the purpose. Right. You know, I you know, I, I do want to add to what you're saying um, that that I think will help with the perspective on esports. So you can't field a football team if they don't have the right equipment right and space what is the purpose of having a football team on a high school campus and i'm not asking you because you and i have talked about this but ultimately for your listeners why why do you have a sports program mm -hmm. and and i i will answer i will share the answer i get from a lot of school leaders and that ultimately is sports enhance student experiences on campus they give mm -hmm. students access and opportunity to do extracurricular activities. I will say that when I was in high school, uh, my high school was probably, it was certainly one of the best in regards to what you could do. I mean, I played four sports in high school. Where did you they, go to high school? Culver City High School. Okay. So here in Southern California. Yeah. So you had a robust athletic program. I mean, we even had a diving team because I remember there were some folks that um, that were working on trying to uh, qualify for the Olympic trials. Were you so, a diver? Uh, I've dived before, but I am not <laughs> a diver. <laughs> okay. But you know what, though? And I, but, but honestly, uh, a real talk. Yeah. Um, several of my friends were on the swim team and I would go and I'd be like, I want to go jump off the high dive and stuff. And, um, and then, of course, I'd challenge them in the pool and you know, maybe I should have been a swimmer instead of a football player. I'd have lakes and less aches and pains. But sure. with that being said, though, um, I, you know, it, um, which that would have been another way to break down some of the uh, stereotypical um, misperceptions that people have, especially about African-American men in, uh, in, in the pool. But sure. with that being said, um, well, you know what? The, a very good friend of mine uh, was a classmate of mine in college, and he just missed qualifying for the Olympics twice um, in uh, 1992 and in uh, 1996. But at any rate, my main point, though, is that they, in, they, they enhance access and opportunity for students on campus. Mm. That's the same thing with esports. And what I've encouraged school leaders to look at is when you're going to implement uh, and start, start and implement uh, uh, an esports program, you want to approach it not unlike you do the other sports programs. One, it's an investment, not an expenditure. And that mm -hmm. investment is for the access and opportunity for students to have a sense of belonging on campus, have a have all of the things that I know I benefited from with being on a team, having mm -hmm. a purpose, having something that you can look forward to that ideally is including the curriculum and that, but some cases, let's be real, some cases it's despite the curriculum and the learning environments that they're in. Mm -hmm. And 
you know, I would say that, you know, I would challenge any school leader. If you are pushing for a college-going culture on your campus and you do not have an esports team, then I've got to question that because ultimately there are opportunities for kids to be able to participate on esports teams and earn scholarships to a college or university. So just like I was fortunate enough to be able to do that playing football, any student should have the access and opportunity to do it within some within an area that they have a good enough skill set in, but more specifically, they have an interest in, and that interest or the catalyst for that interest is a sense of belonging and a purpose. I just I I, I just have to add, and then I because I know you want to ask me another question, and in yes. fact, you're one of the stories where I hear about students who are othered. It's the best mm. way I can describe it. And and for, for your audience, um, one, if you don't know what othered means, it means you haven't been the victim of it. And ultimately, othered is some component of their identity, whether it's their gender identity, uh, their, their um, uh, racial identity, their socioeconomic status identity, their language identity. Some component of their identity has been treated as less than. That means they've been othered. I'm seeing more and more and more and more now where many schools are not only starting but creating robust esports teams and the composition of those teams generally are students who have been othered. Yes. Which means you are now decreasing the likelihood that they will drop out of school, decreasing the likelihood that they will that their their sense of not being seen and heard on campus can compromise their academic performance increasing access and opportunity to options when they graduate, mm -hmm. increasing a sense of camaraderie. And I've seen it with some schools where the esports teams, they get jerseys. So here's the thing. Oh yeah. Yeah, and I love it. Because you can see it behind me. I have the, if you're watching the yeah, video. The, yeah, because here's the thing. In high school, every Friday, the football team will wear their jerseys on campus. Right. Okay, uh, in the fall. On Thursdays, mm -hmm. when I was on the freshman team, we'd wear our jerseys on campus. So you know who's on what teams. Mm -hmm. and, and, and there would be other ways. Like, like I remember our, uh, our uh, women's basketball team. They were, they were pretty amazing. Um, periodically, they would wear their, their, their jerseys, you know, uh, during the basketball season and stuff like that. Or they would wear, you know, the, the tops of their sweats. But right. my whole point is they would wear the apparel that's associated with the team they were on and wear it on campus as a source of pride. Mm -hmm. And to encourage additional support from their classmates. Yes. I'm seeing that with esports teams now too, and it's it's it needs to happen. It just needs to happen. It needs Can to happen, and it needs to happen because the kids deserve better. They deserve better than what they're getting. I'll I'll tell you this too in in, in our school district in in Racine, and this was something I got initial pushback on or or disbelief or side eye looks when um, one of our issues of access, of course, is that uh, we, we, we didn't have equal technology, right, in, in the schools. And so we, we partnered with a, a gaming lounge in town that allowed us to rent space, like you rent a bowling alley. And yeah. what we did do was I put all five high school teams together in the same space. Now, we're talking about a city of Racine that is high poverty, there's gang problems, uh, it's very divided racially, uh, it, it got rated one of the most, um, uh, negative, I guess you could say, cities for African-Americans uh, in the United States. But what we did was by putting all five high schools together, what did we do? We increased that community. You don't see that with football. You don't see that with basketball. You don't see that with traditional sports. As you're saying, I took 
where I shouldn't say it wasn't just me. It was the work of a lot of people. But we took these othered kids from across the city who may have only been sectioned off because of their address. And now they know each other across town. When when COVID broke, we have our discord server and I saw kids from other schools checking in on other kids when it was issue, when we couldn't get buses. What did kids do? They would drive across town to go to the gaming lounge and we would pick up kids along the way who needed it. Didn't matter what school you're at. If you needed a ride, we worked out a ride for you. But let me ask you this. And, and, and this is I think this is important to point out, too, is that you talk about this next step going to college. You went to Culver City High School. You played football at UCLA. So you had that football connection. Were you going to, and guessing that your father was an educator, that you were going to go to college regardless, but was UCLA going to be, if you weren't going to play football, was UCLA going to be your choice? So I come, first of all, I do come from a family of educators. Yes. Uh, one of the things I do share in the, the uh, workshops that I do around organizational culture is that I'm not first generation of my family to go to college. I'm not second. I'm not third. At a minimum, I'm fourth. Minimum. Mm. So I do come from a family of very uh, well-educated um, folks. Sure. Um, and 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 keep in mind, this goes all the way back to at least fourth generation, where if you were uh, black growing up here in the U United States, it was a high likelihood you would not go to college. Um, and so. Basically, the, going to college was never, never. It was never. It was never a question mark for me ever. But, but I think what I want to get at, what I'm trying to get at, is again looking at it through the lens of some of my own kids, who now have esports, and as we talked about the scholarship opportunities, the opportunities they are now right, considering right. schools that they never considered before. So I guess even though you lived in Culver City and UCLA was basically right there, was UCLA if you weren't playing football, was it going to be your first choice, or were you considering other options? I, I had other options. Uh, mm -hmm. So, you know, my other options at the time were um, Georgia Tech, mm -hmm. University of Arizona. Uh, and then I had already um, gotten my congressional nomination for the United States Air Force Academy as well. Because my, so, I come from a military family as well. So, well, you know, so, it, it, I did have other options. Well, and uh, let me ask you this then, because for me, and again, this goes back to the value of these extracurriculars on campus. I went to Purdue University. Uh, unfortunately, we never got to play UCLA in a Rose Bowl, but that will happen one day, I'm sure, somewhere in the future where we will get to sit down and have that. But for me, I got to Purdue, got to Purdue fine. Going to college was never an issue. My father went to the University of Notre Dame. My mother uh, went to the College of Notre Dame, ironically, in, in Belmont, California. But the marching band, while there was no school of music at Purdue University, the marching band with 400 kids was the thing that kept me in the university. It was that social fabric that kept me there. Yeah. It's the thing when I showed up on campus, I had 400 people to hang out with. We got to commiserate awful football because my first year was 1993 and Purdue went one and 11 in the Big Ten that year. It was a terrible team, terrible season, but we sat there and froze our butts off on Friday, on, on Saturdays on, in November and, and October. That was the thing that kept me in. Was there ever a doubt with you that, that football kept you at UCLA? Oh, that's a good question. Um, no, because I love school, man. I, I <laughs> you're I, a nerd. <laughs> no, it's not so much that, honestly. And the, that's a good thing. The, the um, uh, it is. I, I, I think it's a virtue. But you know, look, football was one part of my school experience. It was the driver for my school experience. But you know, keep in mind when I graduated from high school, and it's funny because at my 
recent high school reunion, two of my high school classmates who organized the reunion, they kind of teased me because they had gone back and looked at our yearbook and were looking at who participated in, in, in various, you know, clubs and, and groups and things like that. And, and they, they just, they, the two of them, they, they, they looked at me and they laughed and they were like, we just went through and looked at, uh, you know, our senior year and all the clubs, everyone in there like, was there a club you weren't in? <laughs> and, uh, and so for me, it was like, you know, my whole thing was maximizing the experiences I could have on campus. So, uh, you know, and my dad, Part of it was my dad understanding the school game. Yes, let's be real. If you're going to apply to a college, the more extracurricular activities you have and the longer you commit to them, it does look better. Sure. But with that being said, you know, for me, I was in academic decathlon, student government, student council. I was in the Spanish club. I was in the French club. Um, I was in the honor society. Um, I was in the... Uh, Geez, there were several others. There were um, there was one uh, I can't remember the name. It was the community service club. Like all those things, where I was like, okay, I want to get more experiences. And and what it did, believe it or not, is it was a good way of looking at developing what I would say groups of friends that weren't solely reliant upon who my teammates were on my sports teams. And so even at even at when I was at UCLA, I had friends that didn't play sports. I had mm. friends that played other sports. I remember one of my teammates, uh, he was a receiver, Sean LaChapelle. He and I used to always go in the spring to the baseball games because a couple of our teammates did play on the baseball team there. And yes, we played football together. But but for he and I, it was just like we're going to go cheer on our classmates, uh, you know, uh, or excuse me, our teammates who who play baseball. And we did have a pretty good baseball team. In fact, you guys had a very good baseball program. Yeah. So. So for me, it was like that. And then I remember um, my sophomore year, uh, I started taking classes in the, um, it was in on the um, the North Campus is, is the area that it's called. I had screenwriting classes. I took theater classes. I wasn't a theater major because you can't, you can't be a theater major and play sports. You just can't do that. And this was after I had shifted my original major, which was biology, because ultimately um, the, the, I think the demarcation to determine if you're going to pursue that or not is organic chemistry, which I'll remember was Chem 11A. I, uh, I was a chemistry major. And, okay. So, yeah. you know, uh, but my main point to share not with you is that, yeah, football was a big part of it. I love sports. I played, like I said, I played quite a few sports in high school. Um, but but ultimately for me, it's it was one, it was basically like one chapter of my whole book of college. And that's why even now, and even when I was in a classroom, I encourage any of my uh, I encourage my students uh, that, you know, when you go to college, don't just go to class, find mm. a group, find, you know, I mean, obviously the, the easy ones are the fraternities and sororities, but I'm like, but you don't even have to do that. They're, they go, I know, I know that by the time I graduated, there was a whole group and I remember going to a couple of their, um, you know, if you will, performances, there was a whole group of, of uh, black students, Latinx students, Asian American students, that were representatives from from the various clubs, if you will, on campus. They started organizing. Oh, it was always in spring quarter, and I want to say it was every other week. They would do in like the the coffee house on campus. They would do a spoken word night, hmm. which was amazing because it was cool. It was like, okay, here's another thing that you can participate in. You don't have to, but it's open for you to do it. And again, the beauty of UCLA, which I will. I'm unapologetic about this. When I was there, it's different mm. now, fortunately. The diversity of campus, and I'm like, that's why I shared it was those those representations from various groups, and, and those were the big ones. You know, you do a spoken word event every two weeks, free, 
and you just go there and you listen and cheer them on and man it was just cool and so i think you know so ultimately to answer a really roundabout way of answering your question football was definitely the driver for a lot of what i've done and what i did but it was not the only thing that i did and i think it's important and we're going to have to wrap up now unfortunately unfortunately um, but i think it's important to juxtapose what you just said as again let's bring this back to equality let's bring this back to issues of access and now the internet is, is now, in a lot of ways, access to the internet is a social justice issue. It should be a utility. Think of the kid who, as we were talking about those that are othered, who esports has been their only activity that they have done outside of school, outside of the compulsory being there from whatever time in the morning to the whatever time in the afternoon. This is their social fabric. This has become it. And I see it makes me mad. It makes me sad to see kids lose this opportunity when, again, it's not like football or baseball, which are canceled for everybody. I see the, the, the news stories that say esports is thriving. And I always have to ask the question, for whom? For who? Exactly. Who Thank is esports e thriving for? Because it's not for some of my kids. It's thriving for professionals. And so what we need is, is there needs to be almost like, as, as we're getting into this, again, this COVID age of school, this, this 2020, 21 school year, which is gonna be the age of COVID, we need to rethink esports in, in, in bold ways. We need to think about it in ways of access. Again, wrapping it all together. And again, you look at the demographics, 97% of boys and 83% of girls across socioeconomics, across race, play video games. Let's give them that social fabric. Let's give them something that they can do outside of sitting at home, potentially in front of a computer and just focusing on curriculum. And let's try to socially bind them together the best way we can. It's still triage. Nothing's perfect. But we want to try the best that we possibly can right now to give no, kids the best you opportunity. Know what? I, 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 I full agreement. And I, I'm, I have a request and I'm putting you on a spot and your listeners will hear this unless you edit this out. I won't. I, I want to come back. I want to come back and I want you and I to do an episode on the intersectionality between esports and other areas of the curriculum. We can do that, especially especially some of the certain some of the platforms that I know esports teams compete on. Mm -hmm. There is there are there are social dynamics that the esports or that the video game platform can be and is in some cases a metaphorical representation of real life. I want us to talk about that because Absolutely. that will help bolster that will help bolster the argument around esports that it doesn't have to be it shouldn't be looked at as another expense, another thing that's over there. What it should be looked at as again, enhancing access and opportunity for the students experience on campus mm. and you know, I mean, like I can even think historically in in, uh, in social studies or even in English, how you can incorporate some of the different gaming platforms that teams compete on within those particular content areas. Oh, sure. Hint. So then I want to hear it about why we shouldn't have an esports team or why we can't or any of those sorts of things. Look, the bottom line is if you look at it as an investment, not an expenditure, that eliminates an awful lot of barriers to the grossly irresponsible narratives that tend to be given more agency than they should be around meeting the needs of our students, ensuring equity, and ensuring that their experiences are aligned with a sense of belonging, a sense of importance, and a sense of purpose, and not just you have to go to school because, well, you have to. 
Ken, where can people connect with you and where can they read? Uh, you're, you're, I know you're redeveloping your website and I'll link to the blog post that you did just this last week, but where can people connect with okay. you otherwise? Yeah, so um, when the new site launches, it will be seamless, so it won't it won't matter uh, as far as being able to connect to it. My website is kennethshelton.net, and then on that website, it has links to my various social media things, which I use Twitter quite heavily. I use Instagram quite heavily. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that I have also done is looked at launching several YouTube uh, channel series that I'm going to be doing. I The sad part is I, they're better if I can do them in person, but mm -hmm. at any rate, the website, I'm, 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 I have also looked at making a shift on the content that I know I have or that I wanna do and, and producing it and putting it out there and not worrying about being judged for it because ultimately those that consume it will find value in it and those that don't, it, guess what? You don't have to consume it. But I wanna do more in contributing to the educational space within my uh, you know, the scope of my perspective, my experience, my expertise. And if you're not challenged, you're not changing, right? If you're not challenged, you're not changing. Ken Shelton, thank you so much for being on the Academy of Esports podcast. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. That will do it for this week on the Academy of Esports. I've been your host, James O'Hagan. Esports are organized competitive video games, allowing schools to redefine their athletic culture, diversify opportunities for student participation, promote good physical and mental health, increase collegiate scholarship pathways, and play games. We can never forget the importance of play. The mission of the Academy of Esports is to support these ideals. The vision of the Academy of Esports is for all students to experience the fun and joy of playing competitive video games. You may follow me on Twitter, at Jim O'Hagan. That's at J-I-M-O-H-A-G-A-N and through the Academy of Esports account at TAO Esports. It's a great way to get the latest blog posts, podcast episodes, and news coming out of esports and education. And remember, you can continue your engagement by going to www.taoesports.com. You can also connect through Facebook at www.facebook.com slash T-A-O eSports. Thanks again for listening, and I look forward to our time again next week.